is the Spirit. This is God's Word. You may be seated. I just think we ought to have a rule that when you read God's Word, you should be holding a baby. Uh, it, it feels really great to be here again with you this morning. Uh, one of the many blessings uh, that, that I have as a minister for this church is that there's so many men in our congregation that can stand up and, and, and step up to this pulpit and preach. And this last week, Ellen and the kids and I uh, were able to get away for a couple of days. And Norris Elam, as always, uh, just did a, a spectacular job of, of talking about a certain area of our life as a disciple of Jesus that I thought was thought-provoking thought and true and challenging. And I'm just really grateful. If you've not had a chance to listen to that sermon, uh, I don't know if you can do it today. Apparently, there is a national Internet outage uh, across our nation today. And, uh, but you can go tomorrow. I, I'm sure it's going to be fixed. It'll be on the website. It'll be on the app. It's called Knowing the Enemy. And if you'd like to hear it, it'll be made available to you, and it'll be worth your while. Uh, this morning, we're going, to, uh, we're going to finish a series that we've been calling The Life Worth Pursuing. Uh, next week, we're going to begin another series. It's going to be about the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to call it Untwisted. Our fallen, sinful nature twists and bends us in ways that make us look very much unlike the human beings we were created to look like. And the series is going to look at Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and how through the Spirit and through God's Word and, and, and through space and time and a lot of other things, there is this fruit that begins to sprout in our life. And that's going to begin this next week. And by way of reminder, I just, it, it seems nearly so silly to say it, but just as a reminder, you know, Jesus never called a person to be a Christian. That came later and later and later in the book of Acts, chapter 11. Jesus called people to follow him. He called them to be his disciples. To follow Jesus means to pursue his kind of life and to call others to pursue his kind of life. His call is not for part-time following. It is not for free time following. It is not at a later date kind of following. It is full-time following, which is the title of the sermon, hashtag like Christ, the X, the letter chi in the Greek word Christos, like Christ 24-7. Let me just challenge you. Everything that you send out this week is a tweet or an email or a text or whatever it might be. Put that on there as a reminder that disciples of Jesus are like Christ 24-7. Now, one of the scriptures that we have looked at is, uh, throughout this entire series is from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Let's say it together with our masks on. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Let's do it one more time. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, this verse can tell us a lot of things, but it, it answers two really specific questions. The first one is this. What does my life look like now that I've been saved and now that I've been converted to the faith and now that I live in the kingdom of God? It answers the question. We are followers of Jesus. His is the example of life. And then number two, what kind of life does the world really need right now to bring the kind of healing to it that the world needs, and that is the life of Christ. Now, as we bring this all to conclusion, just very quickly, 
uh, a review of the three statements, main big gigantic teachings of the last three weeks. Number one, eternal life is an intimate and interactive life with God forever, beginning right now. Eternal life is an intimate and interactive life with God forever, but it begins right now. As disciples of Jesus, that means that we are leaning into God's future. We are becoming right now, today, as, as Adrian read in the scripture, day by day, we are becoming now what we will be then. Big lesson number two, we live like Jesus with the help of the Spirit until Jesus is formed in you. We live like Jesus, that's a choice. With the help of the Spirit, there's a resource until Jesus is formed in you. There's the goal. We are called to live an extraordinary life that is only possible with God's help. In fact, that we can't even come into the kingdom of God without the help of God. Paul will say in Galatians chapter 2, about verse 21, that the righteousness, if righteousness could have been uh, achieved through the law, then the Messiah died for nothing. And then number three, we were created to reflect God. This goes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, 28, where God, having created man and planted him in, on earth in the garden, says he's made in our image, he's in our likeness, and he is to bring creation, bring order to it. So when we were, we were created, we were created to reflect God as, as image bearers in his likeness. We are reflecting God, being made in his image into the world. But as creatures, we are gathering up the praises of God and reflecting the praises of creation back to God. That was the, human the original human job description. Now here is the big idea that we're going to finish with. Pursuing Jesus as a disciple means doing what Jesus would do if he were you. Pursuing Jesus as a disciple is doing what Jesus would do if he were you. That sounds simple, right? Now it's not easy. Never said it was easy and it's not easy, but it is simple. So why then do we complicate it? You know why we complicate it? It's because we can't help but complicate it. Uh, we complicate things as kind of the default mechanism of being a human. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you the difference between a virtue and a vice. A vice is formed in a human being when the human being does nothing. You don't have to do anything, and vices begin to form. That is the nature of being a fallen human being. A virtue, on the other hand, is something that you do. A virtue is formed by doing something a thousand times so that on the one thousandth and first time, it is second nature. Now the same thing is true when it comes to complicating life. We don't have to work to complicate our lives. That comes naturally. We have to work to uncomplicate them. We have to work to simplify our lives. We are our own worst enemies. You know the old joke, how many 16-year-old sons does it take to screw in a light bulb? One, but you have to tell him 50 times. We do not do anything very simply. We, we, simple and easy is just not going to be our default setting. And there is actually a term for this that I got from a popular blogger in the business leadership world who actually got it from the computer programming world. But before I give you the term for this way that we complicate our life, let me give you an illustration of how it works. So you want to wax your car, but you have to wash it first. Oops, 
The water hose is cracked and ruined from last winter's freeze and it needs to re be replaced. So you need to go to Home Depot, and this is New York City where this is all taking place. It's on a toll road and you don't have any cash and you don't have a toll tag in hand. But wait, I will borrow my neighbor's toll tag, toll tag but no, the neighbor is probably not going to let me use his toll road tag until I return his son's mushy pillow. But my son has not re returned the mushy pillow because there's a tear in it and the stuffing fell out. And so now we need to get some yak hair in order to refill it. So now you're at the zoo shaving a yak when you really need to wax your car. That's the term. I told you, you're never going to forget this as long as you live. It, we are experts, and we don't even know this, we are experts at shaving a yak. Shaving the yak means adding enough seemingly necessary subtasks, human subroutines, that levels of separation are created that unwittingly block the critical and most important tasks from being done. I'll give you an example from church life. I want to share my faith with my coworker. And I start thinking of an opportunity to do that when it dawns on me that he might ask me a question that I do not know how to answer. And so I begin to think about all of those questions and it dawns on me that I might need to read a book on apologetics before I share my faith. But I don't know of any really good books on apologetics. So I make a, uh, an appointment, I text or I email my preacher to get a book. He recommends one, but then I've got to decide where I need to get it. Is it Amazon or is it ChristianBook.com? And then finally, the book is here and I'm excited, but now I've got to carve some time out of my week to read the book. And now I realize that it's just one more book of about five books that I need to re read right now. And what happens when I have shaved that yak so far that there are all of these levels of tasks that have separated me from the, the beginning task of sharing my faith that I lose the moment and I lose momentum. I lose the moment and I lose momentum to share my faith with another human being because we complicate. Now there's absolutely nothing wrong, there's nothing immoral about wanting to know about apologetics. We, everyone should be able to defend the faith. But we complicate it and we begin shaving a yak and the next thing you know, we have lost opportunities to be the kingdom of God for somebody close to us. Now our big idea today is pursuing Jesus as a disciple is doing what Jesus would do if he were you. If he were married to your spouse, if he worked your job, if he had your kids, if he had your income, if he had your health issues, if he lived in your neighborhood, what would Jesus do if he were you? Recently, I read through the Gospel of Mark from the beginning to the end, very slowly, and just took notes on all of the things that Jesus would do, that is, his actions. And at the end of reading those 16 chapters, I made notes on 105 uh, specific actions of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And although there are 105, we're into triple digits of things that you could just say, Jesus did that, Jesus did that, Jesus is doing, doing this, they can be boiled down to three very simple components. Number one, he was engaged with God. That is one of the first lessons of the Gospel of Mark. What is it that happens to Jesus before you even begin 
Jesus' ministry. He is baptized. He is driven out into the desert. And we know the story of the desert. He is tempted and tempted and tempted. But before that, it's 40 days of fasting and prayer. And possibly the book of Deuteronomy, a scroll of Deuteronomy that he memorizes. Because when he's tempted by Satan three times, we know this from Matthew and we know this from the other Gospels, that he quotes scripture from Deuteronomy. Before he even begins his ministry, he is engaged with God. Also in Mark chapter 1, on that Sabbath, after he has moved to Capernaum, in, in verse 21, he goes on that Sabbath to the synagogue and teaches. Everybody's just really amazed with what he has to say. And then in verse 23, they no longer say amen to what he's been preaching in the synagogue, that there's this demon-possessed man who comes in and he heals them, exercises that demon out and everybody is absolutely amazed verse 29 six verses later he goes to Peter's home and he heals Peter's mother-in-law and she makes lunch for everybody later that evening verse 32 the the Sabbath has ended the Sun has gone down and the whole town the whole village of Capernaum shows at shows up at Jesus's house and he spends the evening and the night healing those that were demon-possessed and were sick but then verse 35, early the next morning, what is it that Jesus does? He goes to the Eremos. That is the Greek word in that text that means a solitary place in order to pray. And he had done it so many times that the disciples knew exactly where to find him. In Mark chapter 3, he goes to the hills to pray. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus takes the disciples to a quiet place for prayer. Again, he goes to the hills to pray. I mean, you just get the idea that Jesus is constantly engaged with God. When you read the life of Jesus, you recognize that Jesus did not recognize a way of living life, a way of doing ministry that did not have at its core, at its heart, in the soul of it, the presence of God. And even at the most difficult moment of his ministry and of his mission, he goes to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus does not recognize a way of living. A way of representing the kingdom of God, a way of bringing the kingdom of God into the world that did not include prayerful, relational engagement with God. So if pursuing Jesus as a disciple is doing what Jesus would do if he were you, if he had your spouse, your money, all of that stuff, what would it look like for, for you to engage with God if he lived your life? Would it be less television? Less screen time on the phone? Laying down Pinterest and picking up the cross? Less gaming? More silence? More solitude? Very simple engaging with God every day. And then number two, he engaged with people. You know, as a preacher type, I mean, we just say this all the time, but I was just struck. Over and over and over, as I read through that gospel and the, and the life of Jesus, as it's written down in the gospel of Mark, and how Jesus was constantly engaged with people, making himself available, traveling to where people were and where people could be found, going to meals, going to dinners. And I've probably read this passage a, a hundred times, Mark chapter 7, verse 14, again. Again, meaning not the first time, Jesus called the crowd to him and began to teach. Jesus was just always engaged and aware of the people around him. Now that always scares introverts, scares introverts to death. But the point is not being forced into crowds. 
but being aware of people and engaged with people because we are reflecting God back into the world as disciples of Jesus, made in the image of God, and that means being in the presence of people. He was not hiding his light under a bushel, but letting it shine where people could see him and observe him and interact with his light. Jesus' life and light was always on the move. So he's engaged with God. He's engaged with people. And then very simply, he's engaging good works and the good news. Very simply, Jesus, and Peter will describe him as somebody who was going around doing good all the time in the book of Acts. He was engaged in good works and he was engaged with good news. At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we read that after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then later in chapter 12, as he's teaching, we read that the large crowds listened to him with delight. Other translations say they, they listened to him gladly. Jesus always had something to say about the kingdom of God. It was always on his heart, and it always sounded like good news, not bad news. It always sounded like it was for people and not against people. It always sounded like an invitation. It always sounded like friendship was being offered with God. You know, the invitation into the kingdom of God is the greatest gift ever offered to a human being. And that, friends, is how he presented it. It's not easy, he would say. But it's so worth it. And he illustrated what it looks like with, with healings and miracles and, and good works. What would your life look like if Jesus had your job, your spouse, your kids, your resources, your neighborhood, your opportunities, and you just said, you know, my life is about engaging with God and just engaging with people. And wherever I am, I'm going to do good deeds. I'm just going to do good. I'm going to make it better. And I'm going to, to share what my faith means to me. I'm going to ask you to do something that involves all three of these this week. Very quickly, and if you go to the, to the, uh, to the website, you can download the, uh, the sermon outline and the MPG, the Memorize, Pray, and Glorify on the back. And what I'm going to have you do this week to, to do all three of these is to, is to do prayer walks around your neighborhood. Get out during the day. And you, a lot of you live in the suburbs and in places where there's a lot of houses and a lot of people. You're going to have to do this a lot to be able to reach everybody. But as you go down your street, think about the people that live behind the doors and, and the kinds of needs and the kinds of ways that you might, might minister to those needs and the way that you might love them, the way that you might represent Christ and the kingdom of God to them. And you're going to engage with God, not just with the people, but you're going to engage with God because you're going to pray for the people behind those doors and ask God specifically to show you ways that, to open up those doors and to open up the doors of their hearts in such a way that you can see ways to minister to them. And love them and share with them and brighten their day and illustrate the kingdom of God in the flesh in the way that you interact with them. And, and, and to do the good deeds and to share the good words and to engage with people and engage with God. I'm going to ask you to do that until every house in your neighborhood has been prayed over. It will make you aware of people and how the kingdom of God is inserted into their lives. You know... Our times cry for people who more than merely choose Christ as a way of life.
as, as, a, as a, a philosophy, but they choose to be transformed into the likeness of Christ by the help of the Spirit that lives in us. Our world hungers for the kind of people who pick up their cross and follow him daily rather than on a part-time basis. Our present day clamor for a kind of human who doesn't just confess Christianity but confesses Christ as Lord. And doesn't just attend church but recognizes that they are the church wherever they are. And he calls us to eternal life in this present age, which is a life like no other. He calls us to kingdom life, where God rules our heart like no other. He calls us to bear the cross in our life and to have blessing after blessing after blessing in our life and to live a joyful life. My friends, his life is the only life worth pursuing. Let's stand and sing.